Hey, this is Steve Balton, and you are here this week on My Turning Point with Ian Asbury from The Cult. He is joining us here at Nightbird Studios at the Sunset Marquee, where we talk about politics, world change. Uh, this one goes deep. This was a really fun conversation. Ian, thanks for being here. The moment that you feel sort of set you on your way and made you who you are today? That's a tough question. Well, because most people have had several lives. I've had more than several. <laughs> um, Is there one that comes to mind? I was mind? born in 1962, the year the Beatles broke in Liverpool, in Merseyside. So immediately I was immersed in it. I had, my father had three aunts who were all teenagers at the time. So I was force-fed Beatles, Stones. I mean, it was just, I was groomed from a very early age. Um, and I was running away from home, being found in a, schoolyard at the age of less than two you know surrounded by little girls uh i don't know i've just been in it for quite a minute um a pivotal moment i mean my god there's so many uh i always loved music i love music since you know i can first recall i used to have a transistor radio i think a pivotal thing was my parents bought me a transistor radio it's like a, a japanese made transistor radio in the late 60s and I used to listen to I had an earpiece it was only mono earpiece and that was only like about 50 pence 80 pence this radio um, at the time and I treasured this thing I'd have it under my pillow every night listening to I wasn't listening to BBC I was listening to Radio Luxembourg Radio Caroline all the pirate stuff I didn't quite know what I was listening to but I knew it was different than the pop that I was seeing on like Top of the Pops, which is a weekly reoccurring show in the UK. Um, so that was pretty important uh, because that thing I was my education, you know. What's well, so fascinating ways. about that though, it's interesting because I think, and I've talked about this with so many musicians, especially as you know, you get, in, you know, as we've changed in times, and you get musicians like Billie Eilish, who I know, and you start when you're 16 years old. Yeah. So many people start music so young, there becomes a point later in life. Mm where you have to decide, okay, this is simply something I grew up on versus this is what it was I wanted to do. So for you, was there a point you grew up on music? Was there a moment where you ever realized like, okay, you sort of like refined your love, do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, it wasn't like that for me. I kind of just fell into it. I actually got asked to join a band because they liked the way I looked. Didn't know I could sing. I didn't know I could sing until they stuck a microphone in front of me in a rehearsal space and said, what we would want to do. What do you know? Sex Pistols. Okay, let's go. That was Southern Death Cult. And uh, I'd already kind of, you know, had a few friends that were in bands that would, you know, invite you to a rehearsal space and you just kind of jam on whatever the music was a day, Joy Division or punk rock, you know, punk rock stuff, Pistols, Clash, Public Image. I mean, because it was easy to play, Ramones. And, uh, you know, just kind of having fun in people's rehearsal space. But uh, I, I, it's very difficult because I couldn't say there was one particular event that was more pivotal than it because it was an amalgamation of it just it was open there was no edit that was just from from the age of zero all the way through you know i mean i was in liverpool when i was probably about three maybe three or four when the beatles were actually in liverpool with my mother shopping so they were there at the city hall 
Well, I think they might have been at the Adelphi Hotel in Liverpool and just being in a crowd of people, you know, and the energy was palpable and uh, it was pretty powerful stuff. And we were just immersed in it. If you lived in that region, you were just immersed. It was everyday news. It was on the radio, it was in people's conversations, it was in the newspapers, it was on television. You know, the phenomenon was phenomenal. So kind of coming out of that environment, being like, pretty much ground zero you think ground beatles have got to be ground zero in many ways um and that was it and then through that the bowie was probably the next major transitional shift seeing starman in 1972 being 10 years old and then i got life on mars that was the first single i bought that was uh i think it was 25 pence and um bought life on mars i bought um i think it was telegram sam at the same time t-rex so these things became discovering the records are in my home that my parents had because they did have Beatles records and um, my father was really into Paul Robeson who was like a kind of a gospel singer with a very deep I think it was like a not even a baritone deeper than that um, voice which is really quite mysterious and evocative and so I had quite a musical household my father painted he's a working class guy but he painted he was an engineer and he would paint so I was surrounded like with this atmosphere of music and a lot of feminine energy with my aunts because my mother had seven sisters as well and they were all like rampant music fans and they lived in Glasgow so if I was in Glasgow being babysat they would like just be playing the music constantly I remember singing Hey Jude in front of my family when I was like seven or eight you know got pushed to do it at Christmas because they thought it was cute hmm. so this is also fascinating to me though because it's so interesting because it, it's like anything when it becomes just a part of who you are at a certain point, you know, you almost start to take it for granted. And I don't mean you and music. I think anybody in general, it's like, it's just, it's there. Yeah. It's always there. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. There. Were there points then, especially as, you know, it's funny, if you refer to the Beatles as ground zero, yeah. then of course there are moments where it's shifted and the dynamic of music has shifted. And then mm. especially you get, it's, you know, it's like when you get into the business too. Mm. It's like, you know, seeing behind the curtain and, and discovering the wizard. Yeah. I mean, going to Canada, so going from Britain to Canada was a huge pivotal thing for me, the age of 11, because all of a sudden, we're 30, 40 miles from the, from the US border, from New York State, I was in Hamilton, Ontario, and all of a sudden, it was Don Krishna's rock concert, Saturday Night Special, American Bandstand, Soul Train, I would watch these programs religiously, because we had a color television, which was something that was just... I mean, it's from another planet because we had black and white pretty much with three channels in the UK and we came over and it was all of a sudden it's in glorious colour. You know, being like 11 or 12 years old watching the New York Dolls and just my mind was blown. So, um, and plus everybody I knew at school was, everybody was into music. There was record stores you could walk into. Record stores were very, very important. You know, you'd learn a lot from who was behind the counter, how they'd curate their, their um, you know, their their displays and and a lot of it you kind of picked up by osmosis um but uh, um i'm trying to sort of reel through this so that was coming into canada and i think another maybe this is pivotal in the sense that it was the first time i really felt like an other an alien to the culture that i was in i was an immigrant didn't matter where i was from northwestern europe you know um it didn't matter i was still an outsider and that kind of forced me into a certain social group. Um, kids, one of my best friends was from Jamaica. Uh, I got a friend from Turkey. There's some native kids, you know, indigenous kids. 
and uh, a few European kids that didn't speak English very well, and we were all kind of lumped together. So we'd all kind of share each other's cultures. So there's this kind of diversity thing happening, and that's why Bowie really spoke to me because that music really reflected more of an understanding of the outsider than the mainstream pop and the mainstream rock because that music was usually listened to by the kids at school that were like, you know, more like to throw a basketball at your head than, you know, than be on an outsider kind of more of an intellectual, uh, you know, um, sharing and immersive. I mean, I used to go to friends' houses and we just sit and listen to records. That's so fascinating yeah. you say that though because I, I just this morning was uh, watching Aziz Azari's new Netflix special. Have you seen it? No. It's freaking brilliant. Mm -hmm. And it's funny, though, because what made me think of it as you were talking about it, he talked about the fact that, you know, growing up as an immigrant, yes. he would be the one Asian, you know, he would be the one Indian kid, yeah. and there would be one Asian girl, yeah. and the kids in first grade would be like, hey, so, you know, basically yeah. trying to get them together. <laughs> and they was joking about the fact, he's like, in 20 years later, mm. it's no different. He's like, oh, Aziz Azari, you're an Indian comic. Oh, yeah. hey, Mindy Kaling, she's an Indian comic actress. Yeah, hey, yeah. what's going on? You know, yeah. And it's so interesting that you say that, because do you feel like that that sort of thing, A, it's pivotal in the sense it makes you more open, mm -hmm. and especially, but B, also, it's funny, because I, I could see where that mentality also slid into music at points, even though most musicians are completely open mm -hmm. and into everything, the the you know let's let's call them you know the peers or or the industry whatever would be like oh, okay well you're in the cult you're touring with this band you're touring only with Alice in yeah. Chains or Guns and Roses even though you may say you know it's like Joe Elliott's a friend and we've talked so much about you know the whole glam rock and how that influenced them so much but no one in a million fucking years would have ever put Def Leppard on the road with T Rex if they were still around well had they requested it they could have done it I mean you mentioned Alice in Chains and Guns N' Roses. Guns N' Roses' first American tour was opening for the cult at my request, you know? So um, <clears throat> after seeing them play at the Marquee in London in 87. Uh, I don't know, because I've always been pretty... People that know me, around me, would get very frustrated because I was the one that was like, nah, <laughs> <We're> not, <laughs> you know, here's seven figures. Kiss the ring, and I'd be like, nah. I'm not kissing the ring for seven... I don't kiss the ring for any figures. And that wasn't just being a reactionary. That was just instinctively knowing that it was being forced into... You're being pigeonholed. And I remember when Gathering the Tribes, the festival I curated with um, Bill Graham, which was conceived in 1989, um, in the Rapid City, South Dakota, I, we were playing with Metallica and I was around a lot of indigenous uh, Lakota Sioux. And... Um, that moment was an opportunity to kind of reflect what was going on with MTV because they were beginning to <clears throat> segregate genres in a very aggressive way. 120 minutes, Yo MTV raps, Headbangers Ball. It was very, very segregated. And then you had, you know, your, 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 up, your, uh, you know, your Kurt Loader every hour or whatever. And um, so all of a sudden there was these genres that were like almost galvanized. They were like quite solid. You couldn't really break out of them. But before that, it was pretty much open. There was a lot of sharing going on. There was a lot of mixed bills. It was cool to play with. I mean, we went to Rick Rubin because of the Beastie Boys. We didn't go because of rock. You know, around hip hop, it was a huge part of our education in New York in 86, 87, being around Def Jam. You know, so fast forward to 1989 and it's like, you know, all of a sudden you're being told that you only fit in this category or that category and you should you know adjust accordingly and we were both on head 120 minutes and headbangers ball we were like split so people couldn't work out they didn't quite know what to do without the guidebook 
So Gathering Tribes was actually a response where I went to people in the community, hip-hop artists, folk artists, um, rock artists, postmodern artists, whatever, and I said, you know, indigenous artists, and I said, we have to respond to this because if we don't, our, ind- our, our, you know, our, our cultural space is going to get divided up. We're going to get segregated, we're going to get divided up, and then we're going to get forced into avenues of compliance. I mean, even the postmodern alternative scene, they were compliant in many ways, you know, with all respect, going on the cover of Rolling Stones and saying, Rolling Stone magazine, saying corporate magazines still suck. Don't go on the cover of Rolling Stone. I didn't. When Rolling Stone asked me to do a certain thing, I was like, no. And they were like, right, you're banned. That was it. We got banned from Rolling Stone. <laughs> so I wouldn't comply with, a, you know, they made a request to wear a certain thing during a photo session with Seymour Stein where we were the protégés and they wanted us to wear certain clothes. And I was like, that's not me. I'm wearing what I've got on. This is who I am. And that was at 23. And I knew immediately that people were pushing me around. And I'd already had enough experience of bullies and sociopaths and all that growing up. My, my litany of my history is just, by the time I was 17, it's already, I'd seen plenty. So, um, yeah, that was a huge thing. So Gathering Tribes is very important part of breaking, you know, those, um, those molds. It's so funny. Do you think then, do you look at, like, for example, um, you look at a festival like the Us Festival in the States, right? Yes. Which yes. was, you know, early 80s. But even that, yeah. which, which was a great festival, you know, amazing. I was lucky. I was a kid, but my dad took, you know, my brother and I. But that was all divided yeah, yeah. by day. It was the heavy metal day with the Scorpions and Van Halen yeah. and all that. I'm thinking of 83. And then, you know, the final mm. day was Bowie's first U.S. appearance in five years. And then you also had U2. That was the New Wave Day. Yeah. So it's interesting. Do you see, so Gathering the Tribes was 89. Yeah. Preceded- well, it, it, the concert happened in 1990, but it was conceived in 89. I mean, it took a full year to put it together. <clears throat> Do you see it, though? And then it's funny, Perry Farrell, who's a very good friend and has done the show, came out with Lala in 91. Yes. Do you see it as a little bit of a precursor? And then all of that sort of set the stage for it's funny, because as we're talking about this, of course, what's happened is now festivals have gone the opposite, and now you have a Coachella with Ariana Grande and, you know, I don't even remember who the fuck played this year, but you know what I mean. It definitely yeah. is, there's still that diversity now. The only thing that's lacking post-Gathering of the Tribes, which was a huge observation that I made, I was like, that's interesting. People are picking up on what, you know, where we're at, the conversation. I was thrilled that, you know, Perry and, and Mark Geiger and Ted Gardner had picked up the baton and like, we're going to continue with this energy. It was like, great, this is great for the community. But the thing that lacked was an altruistic component. It was all incredibly narcissistic and self-serving. There was no real talk about social and environmental issues, which Gathering of Tribes did have. We had social and environmental um, you know, representation at the event because that was one of my... you know, I, Not only to see the... Uh, disparity between all different musical genres and what people are trying to do, like segregators, but also with all the political and social groups, they're all working separately, you know? When when in actual fact, if you put us all together, we can get a lot more done. And that that came from punk rock. That ethos came from, like, following Crass, you know, who I saw 25, 28 times. I mean, they were hugely influential on me. I I was at their home. I toured with them. And their philosophical... Uh, rhetoric was really intoxicating for a young mind, you know. I was like desperately craving uh, mentorship. And the first time I tasted tempura was at Crass's house in Dial House in, the, you know, in Epping, like 1980, 81, something like that. 
And that was huge because Japan to me was a, a mystical place. And we eventually got to, we got to go there in 85, 86. Going to Japan was hugely pivotal. But it's so interesting because you talk about this and yet what's happened, of course, is that so many of the festivals now and, and you know, even going back to the beginning of Coachella have, have had to try, blah, I can't talk today, have tried <laughs> to have some kind of environmental impact, have tried to have some kind of that. Now, of course, it's interesting because, I mean, look, when you think of it's funny, as soon as yeah. you said that about the narcissistic and the self-serving, yeah. the festival that came to my mind was the concert for Bangladesh, which precedes all of that. Yeah. And I think that, you know... Well, look at Monterey Pop, you know, I mean, Monterey Pop was for the community, by the community. It was like bang on time. And then grew out the, the Newport Jazz Festival and all this kind of thing, so... Look at the debacle that is Woodstock 50. Who the fuck is surprised? Because that's just cashing in on a name. Oh, yeah, it was a Fire Island situation there. Yeah. Again, yeah, but this rampant groping for material reward or, you know, I have nothing wrong with it with an individual artist pursuing a career and being monetarily rewarded for their talents and for the uniqueness. But I think there's a certain point now and there's a responsibility for an artist to have an awareness uh, whereby you do realize that you have a certain bandwidth. And there's also, an op- if there's an opportunity there to bring something in to expand the experience of the, of the concert, which is essentially an entertainment experience. But <clears throat> let's roll it back millennia when we had rituals, we would all gather, the tribe would all gather, and that was our entertainment. But it was also informative because it would give us information about, you know, the cosmos, about, you know, sexual relations, about, you know, spiritual relations, and all these, that was a very important part of the firmament of original ritual. And the 60s kind of got that, you know, in some of, some of its context. But as we've gone further forward, it's been more and more and more commercial, which is the, the ultimately the bottom line is how much you know how many zeros are going to be on it, and um, I mean I've I've had conversations with everybody from Live Nation, everybody will listen. I'm saying it's great what you guys are doing, but at some point you're going to have to look at the sky, at some point you're going to have to look at the water, at some point you're going to have to look at the air because we are in a petri dish that's you know the the science experiment isn't going very well, and, you know so whatever we can do to to do some of the you know, heavy lifting and push other agendas through. When we played the Greek recently, the cult, we had a group called Force Blue come. It was a group I'm involved with. And they are a group of um, ex-military veterans who dive on coral reefs, who repair coral reefs, who do marine um, rescue. They've been working with sea turtles. Uh, You know, they spend their time um, in their community kind of recalibrating what they were trained for which is, you know, military operations, and now they're applying it to an ecological, uh, you know, pursuit, more of an altruistic thing, and, and they're not getting paid for it or anything. They're doing it because they know it needs to be done. <clears throat> and not talking about it. It's not a dinner. It's not, <laughs> you know, it's not a, a, a fundraiser. They're in the water doing it. They're physically there. And so I was like, this is phenomenal because these guys are just putting their money where their mouth is. They're doing it, and they've done it. So, you know, and plus without blue, without the oceans, people talk about the forest, the Amazon, without the oceans, we're done. We are completely finished. And the oceans are round with microplastics. We know all this. We've heard it. But at some point, I think, you know, you want to step in and... It's interesting, though, you say we know it, we've heard it, and yet for some reason not everyone still seems to understand it. So for you, this is always an interesting thing, because I talk about this so much with artists, and, you know, at a point where you 
is it something that as you've gotten older, and especially what happens to, it's funny, one of my favorite quotes from an interview I ever did was with Alice Cooper, who I'm sure you know very well. And he was saying that uh, it was actually at Steven Tyler's Grammy party, and you know, which benefits victims of sexual abuse and underage mm-hmm. abuse and all this. And so I was talking with Alice about the importance of being there, and he said, and I always butcher this quote, but paraphrasing, that as you get older, your, your fame is the brand that you can use for good. Yes. So, and for you guys, That's obviously, <laughs> you've had so much success. You know, we haven't even talked about the 30th anniversary, mm-hmm. which is, you know, coming out soon, all this. But, you know, at some point, once you've had that success, do you start to realize, okay, that's all great, but then, you know, what the fuck good is a gold and platinum album if the world is gone anyway? Yeah, I set mine on fire. <laughs> Actually, I, did, I, I threw all mine in the trash and set them on fire on a barbecue uh, in the mid-90s. Um, really? Still, How come? Because I didn't want to be associated with the industry that I'd been, and I, I wasn't like a, a child. I'd been in it since I was 19. So I'd kind of been in it for a good 14, 15 years, and I knew it, it wasn't, it's like, I don't want to be part of your institution. You well, know? No, the, the reason I asked specifically how come is because I was very fortunate to get to spend a day before he passed with the great Jim Carroll, uh-huh. who was one of my favorite yeah, yeah. artists of all time. Uh-huh. And he was talking about the, the bonfire. and Basketball how, Diaries. Yeah, for yeah. how every art, which was the book that made me want to be a writer. And we had a song in that film as well. Oh, nice. And Ray Manzarek, when I was with The Doors of the 21st Century, would bring in Jim Carroll lyrics and say, we're going to start with these. So I had all these lyrics that were Jim Carroll's personal stuff that hadn't even been released. Oh, nice. We were working, musically working with that. Anyway, sorry. Uh, no, that's, that's okay. Side, sidebar. No, it's fascinating and it's funny because I actually <laughs> did quite a bit of work with The Doors as well. So yeah. I worked on The Doors uh, in their own words book, so we'll come on to that in a second. But while I was saying what Jim Carroll was talking about was the is sort of, you know, how it was necessary to take everything and burn it and start over. For him, it was an yeah. artistic, you know. Well, it's a classic motif and it's been around for, you know, uh, build to destroy, destroy to build. It's, I mean, it's the... It's the um, you know, Caduceus, it's, uh, it, you know, the serpent eating itself. Uh, what's that? That's not Caduceus. Caduceus is the serpent around. That's the medical symbol. Um, so when you did this, did you feel a, a rebirth? Oh, I felt, well, you know, let's roll it back a little bit. I think how did I get into that space wasn't just because of punk rock. It was also because my mother contracted cancer when I was 14, 15 years of age. So we were actually directly impacted by the industrial Society. We were living next to two steelworks. It was incredibly pollutive. And uh, both my parents contracted cancer in that city and died. And I witnessed that, you know, two-year, very slow deaths. But it was because of industry. It was because of the industrial environment. And so that gave me a consciousness about your, your place in the scheme of things. And perhaps gave me a little bit more social insight. And uh, also being in, uh, you know, cancer wards and... You learn very quickly that your needs as a teenager just have to get put to the side because, you know, with your parents and, and other people in the wards, you just, you couldn't be anything less than compassionate in those environments. So that was just a theme that went all the way through to going to Tibet in 1998, um, you know, or... You talk about... Um, but I'm sure that theme still goes through today. It's interesting because that's one of the reasons I yeah. like this show and the format. Uh-huh. And like Brian O'Bear from Silverstone Pickups was on here recently. Yeah. And he chose when his mom got cancer at the age of six. Yeah. And I mean, my dad had cancer at the age of six. Yes. He was given three months to live. He miraculously lived. But Amazing. it's interesting because you know, you find as you get older, even when you don't realize how much those things impact you, they stay a part of who you are. Absolutely. You so I'm sure it's funny you say going through to Tibet in '98, but I'm sure yeah. if you look at what you did last night, 
Yeah, I mean, it definitely will inform um, writing processes, relationships, conversations. I mean, it's there. But it's not like it's... I think when I was younger, it was a lot more um, prominent because it was so fresh and really fueled that kind of angst-driven, um, you know, um, I guess, uh, earnest... You know, it really drove that because it was authentic. And people constantly asking you, especially in British media, you had to authenticate yourself. Where are you from? What was your social background? What's your mu musical influences? How working class are you? And yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, and if you didn't fall into a certain category, with all respect to Pitchfork, I really like Pitchfork and I do look at Pitchfork. Um, but it really, uh, you know, you start doing a college thesis on the review of an album and the way that, you know, a monetary value. On, on a record like that monetary value isn't checked by the federal uh, you know uh, revenue um, you know whoever puts a value on a number uh, it's just their number so you're basically saying that it's, it's their point of view it's their intelligence and I always throw it back to them as like show me your qualifications and I'm not talking about like how many you know how many Noi and uh, you know Krautrock records have you got in your, in your collection tell me about your life experiences who are you what gives you the opportunity to be an intellectual bully in this way? You know, why, why should we listen to you as an authority? We don't really question authority. We accept and we assume. A lot of assumption. I get it constantly. People go, you're full of contradictions. I'm like, it's just life experience. Would you prefer like a one monotonal, <laughs> you know, drone? And perhaps that's one of the reasons I'm still here, you know, passionately engaged in what I'm doing. That's interesting. Now, I, I want to go back to, though, it's funny because you said, you know, when we were talking about your parents, and it'll come up in writing, in conversations. Sure. And it's interesting because I, I think that one of the things that really happens to people, you know, is they only start to get the perspective of what writing is about yes. later on because most writing is really subconscious. Mm -hmm. So for you, are True. there moments that you go back and look at songs you've written that you, you see things in there that surprise you? Because obviously you've chosen mm. a lot of pivotal moments. Yes. But you go through this and you see, and I'm sure it's funny, I'm sure there are things that, you know, even in a song like Edie Chow Baby, I mean, mm -hmm. there's still probably things that draw directly from your experience. That was more of a biographical... But that's why that's why I chose that one specifically yeah, yeah. is because even even your biography I used her as the foil. Yeah, I couldn't even really talk about myself. Stuff, you know? Yeah, I was reaching for something that was way beyond my ears. I didn't have the, uh, I guess, I certainly had emotional intelligence, but it wasn't evolved. It was very young. It was very kind of green and naive and you know sophomoric and and I hadn't developed a lyrical style. I was trying to. I was had certain influences which I was maybe trying to emulate and, but um really trying to get to the core of it being a, 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 a tactile, and, you know, so there'd be some, an emotional response to it. I was really trying to convey a sentiment. And the words were kind of painting the picture. So they weren't always directly about what the song, you know, people's immediate interpretation of the song. It's like this song about Edie Sedgwick. Well, it's actually a bit more than that. And uh, it's a bit more than that. It's, it's biographical. I'm identifying with this figure and... But um, I'm sure it's also something that where you look back on it now, 30 years later, mm. you see things in there, you know, and that's always a fascinating thing to me mm. is when you're dealing with anniversary packages, mm. you know, is, is, cause again, 30 years ago, as we've talked about, as you said, you've lived several lives. Yes. So who you were 30 years ago? No, it's completely different. Right. So it's interesting when you go back and look at this material then, yeah. do you feel a connection with it? Or are you surprised by how certain songs stay relevant or how some yeah. have changed in ways that you- Yeah, yeah. Well, we're only playing eight of the 10 or 11 songs from the album. 
that's there's been an editing process and very much traditionally to my uh, you know, angle of coming in at things. I look at it and go like, hmm, Sonic Temple, 30th anniversary, Beggar's Banquet, want to release this. Let's support this one. Because I didn't support Love, I didn't support Electric, being reissued. I was like, not interested in nostalgia-based. Uh, but although we did tour Electric 13, but we branded it as The Cult in, you know, 2013, doing the Electric album in a way that was, with a band, it was completely different sound and sentiment. And same with love, um, but with with Sonic Temple, I thought here's a perfect opportunity to reflect upon the DNA of the cult. So we've, the tour is called A Sonic Temple, more referring less to the album, more to the venue and the performance as a place, as a destination, and everything that that could possibly, um, you know, uh, indicate. I guess with A Sonic Temple, so. Um, I haven't really looked back at it. I think I was intelligent enough when I was a kid. I had enough emotional intelligence to put archetypal... Because I was reading Joseph Campbell, so I was reading about archetypes and Carl Jung, and I'm like, you know, all through Bowie and Morrison and, you know, all my literary influences and, and uh, you know, and, and, and a bit of school as well went in there, although school was a bit rough for me. I went to like 12 schools. Um, so, uh, yeah, there was never this kind of like um, constantly monitoring or analysing what I was doing and you know I wasn't thinking hmm wonder why I made that choice or anything like that it was just it was just instinctive you know put it out there moved on and uh, well that's what I was getting at that's what's so yeah. interesting about anniversaries is until yeah. you have to go back and revisit it most yeah. artists never do but yeah. then when you go back and revisit it you know you do get and it's funny because when you look at 30 years later because it is so much like a different person, you actually do get that perspective of like, oh, okay, you can almost take yourself out of the equation mm. a little bit. Mm. And I only know this from having talked with so many artists about anniversaries, and it's really interesting as well because we had Paul Banks on the show from Interpol who yes. had done the 10-year anniversary of uh, lights, turn out your lights. What I can't, I'm drawing turn blanks. Turn bright lights. Yes. Yeah. You know, and, and I had also had Gavin Rossdale talking about the 25th anniversary of 16 Stone. Yes. But one of the things that came up with both of them and with everyone I ever talk about with, like you say, you weren't interested in nostalgia typically. Yes. For this one, however, you decided to do it. But it's interesting because everybody I've talked to who's dealing with some form of nostalgia mm -hmm. also is very comfortable with where they are today. Mm -hmm. And if they were, as an artist, felt like they were being pigeonholed into only being a nostalgic act, yeah. they wouldn't do it. Yeah. But because they're forward thinking, they felt comfortable with the idea that, okay, I don't mind celebrating my past because it's not, it doesn't define me. But it's also an opportunity to acknowledge all the patrons that we've had over the decades. People have actually bought concert tickets. People have actually bought our records, supported the band, because they carried us through. They carried us through the most bleakest periods. People would still turn up and you'd be like, my God, you're still here. <laughs> you'd be like, yeah, we're, you know, we connect with what you're doing. And, and that was... I mean, that's quite overwhelming emotionally. I don't talk about audiences often, but I do, when I do, it's with great reverence. You know, I'm not like a, a, a constantly shout out to the fans. It's nothing co condescending or patronizing. I mean, I spend enough intimate time with people that come to our shows to know what kind of backgrounds they come from, what their daily lives are like. They share that with me. And there's a certain openness and a, um, vulnerability and then that's beautiful so that's another huge reason for doing it is to acknowledge the support that we've had over the decades and to uh, and and to celebrate that 
which the Greek was very, I don't know if you were at the Greek, but that was kind of a, a real, that was a very pivotal moment for us. We're like, wow, this is amazing. We haven't played LA for three and a half years and here we are at the Greek with, you know, Mm -hmm. 6,000 people or whatever. It was incredible. I'm curious. I want to go back to, uh, on a side note, just because this fascinates me as a fan. If you were to do Gathering of the Tribes right now, mm. 2019, mm -hmm. who's on it for you? I've been asked to do it. Okay. Um, wow. Everybody. I mean, where do you start? Billy Eilish, uh, Kendrick, um, Carpenter Brute, who I love. <laughs> um, man. You know, you'd have to have Solange or uh, something like that on there, Nine Inch Nails. It, I'd, I'd probably pick Idols, um, you know, UK band that are just incredible right now. Um, Sun, who I worship, I think they're incredible. It's my prayer music. Uh, you know, and probably a lot of uh, ethnic artists from different cultures, indigenous. I've always, want, when we did Gathering Tribes, the first artists that we approached were Native Americans. Because I thought, if we're going to do a festival, a cultural event in North America, we should include the indigenous people of this continent. So that was the, the thought process with that. And that kind of set a certain, um, you know, a certain tone. And I think people picked up on that, you know. And I saw it again probably at the Tibetan Freedom Concert, which we had to fight to get on because we were a rock band mm. and they wanted to be like left of center. I was like, well... Actually, if you look at our credentials, being left of center, we were indie before indie was even a thing. So, um, I don't know. It's it, I'd sit down. I mean, I know that when I did Tribes, at the top of my list was NWA and Guns N' Roses and In Excess and like Sinead O'Connor and um, people like that, you know, people I've met. And, uh, you know, Lenny Kravitz was just coming up. Madonna, U2. There was so many people who was on the list. Nick Cave, um, Iggy Pop, who did actually do the, do the festival. Um, you can ask me on a different day, I'll probably give you a different answer. Of course. Yeah. It's like if you ask someone their favorite song, every day is going to be a different answer. Yeah. But That's it's, a tough one. Let's wrap up on the fan note for a second. I think it's interesting. I, I think, you know, it's this is always such a cool thing. You know, what, was, what were those songs for you, like one or two songs when you think to being a kid mm -hmm. that you felt like, how do I, basically music can save your life. You know, like you talked about being it has, bullied. It has. Yeah. It those one or two songs that when you think about as a kid, those, those songs that spoke to you that made you feel like they were speaking directly to you? Oh, I think everything <laughs> I listened to, <laughs> I felt was speaking directly to me. I'd say Life on Mars. That was the one that was really hooked me in. When I heard that, I, would, I had the single I played over and over. I mean, that was just on all the time. The record player with it, the arm would they'd come back and reset itself. Yeah, so... And, you know, I got to meet David later. We opened for him in Paris in 1987 and met him several times after that. So it was incredible to get acknowledgement from that artist who I'd admired growing up, who then became someone who was just popped up in my life at times when I just needed his his essence. And, and it really, really reactivated me, you know. And even, um, you know, playing the first tribute that the Wilton between Mike Garson and Earl Slick, you know, doing rock and roll suicide was like, as a 10 year old, if I thought that was going to be doing, <laughs> I, I couldn't, I couldn't fathom it. It's too extreme. It's beyond science fiction. You know, it's too beyond lysergic, you know, <laughs> existential craziness. And, uh, but as a 10 year old as well, 
what I was getting at with asking the question is, mm. could you have ever imagined as well? And how much do you then appreciate, and it blows your mind, that when you think back to being the 10-year-old listening to Life on Mars, mm. that there are people who, at 10 years old, listened to your music and mm. had the same response. Wow. Well, that, I, couldn't, I would never make any comparisons, but I definitely have met fans that have come up and said, I heard your music at a certain time in my life, and it's been with me for 30-plus years, and, and it's been the soundtrack to my life, which is always kind of... You know, it it's difficult to to. I mean, I usually just say thank you and show some gratitude, uh, which is the appropriate response. But it's also realizing that you are affecting or connecting with other humans in the way that you've connected with artists yourself. So that's that's really gratifying. Yeah. Cool. What's coming up tour wise, by the way? Um, we are going to Spain. We're playing in Madrid, and we're also playing. Um, we're playing in Madrid at like August 22nd, 21st, and then we play a festival in Portugal with uh, Manic Street Preachers, um, and then we fly back, and then we've got a Caboo. We're going to do Caboo this year. Oh, nice. In San Diego. It's local, mm-hmm. and we've been asked several times, and this year we thought it'd be cool to do it because we're out, we're active, we're working. I mean, the Colts Prince, pretty much a live band. We started as a live band, we came out of the clubs, so we're always going to be doing shows or involved in live music in some way. And then we have pretty, a decent um, UK tour, um, which is, we actually get to play the Hammersmith Odeon, which is now the Hammersmith Apollo, where Bowie did, you know, Ziggy mm-hmm. Stardust. And we have played there before, but I think that this is kind of a, a triumphant return to London. It's 90% sold, so we're pretty stoked with that. I didn't realize Manic Street Preachers were still around. Oh, yeah, they had an album come out about two years ago, and uh, it's an excellent record. All right, I'm going to have to go check it out, because yeah. uh, If You Tolerate This, Your Children Will Be Next was yeah. a, a, one of my favorite albums of the 90s. I, Just an incredible I, I, album. I think Manic Street, they're incredible. Great songwriters. Yeah, no, that was yeah. an amazing album, yeah. so now I have to go back and check it out. Yeah, beautiful songs. I, I, I mean, my I guess is I don't think it. it came out stateside. It's possible. It's possible. But, you know, I think... Because we're so disconnected, there's no record stores to go to. There's no like, there are radio stations, but all our musical tastes are so eclectic. There's no like one station that plays your eclectic tastes. I mean, there's there's very few DJs and you know podcasters who there's a handful. But um, unless you're tuned into that, I usually take my information from different sources: travel, individuals, friends, and musicians. People drop stuff on me. My sons. My wife is a brilliant musician. Um, How old are your sons? 23 and 25. Okay. So I get good feedback from those guys Mm -hmm. because they've got good musical taste. They're pretty diverse. Uh, My wife plays in a band called The Black Rider. Okay. So she's, you know, an accomplished musician herself. So I get great feedback from her. Um, She has a great sense of uh, sentiment, aesthetic. Um, She's a great writer. Um, So within our household... You know, there's that, that this ferment exists. Yeah. Do you guys ever work together? Um, we've kind of talked about it, but we haven't really consummated it. Um, it's I think it's difficult to uh, tell you, you know, person closest to you, the most intimate with, like, maybe you want to try this. <laughs> you know, it can be very delicate because it's a very vulnerable process. Yeah, no, yeah. it's fascinating because my favorite songwriter of all time is Tom Waits. Oh, okay. Absolutely love Tom, yeah. right? And he's done all his writing in recent years with Kathleen Brennan. Fantastic. And that is such a fascinating yeah. concept, and I agree with you. Yeah. To think about. You oh, know? I definitely would. You know, it's, it's, it's on the cards at some point. But um, yeah, Tom Waits, sort of the Rain Dogs tour, which was phenomenal. I cried at that concert. 
Yeah. When he was doing Waltzing Matilda. Um, phenomenal artist. Yeah. But it's also so that it would be fascinating then if you could ever pick his brain as to okay. Oh. So how do you how do you write with your wife? They obviously have a, a, yeah. a solid, you know, partnership and because um, it's when you get in there you, you start revealing some things, it can get it can get quite heavy very quickly, you know, especially when you're very in a vulnerable space and you're mining for something. Yeah, it's gotta be the right the right day, the right conditions. The right everything. Yeah, the right everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Make sure the, uh, you know, you're not distracted, and you know you can close the doors, and yeah. Cool. What do you want to add that we did not talk about? What's whatever you want to talk about? I mean, there's just tons. You talk about pivotal moments. I mean, well, that's the thing. Pink Is Floyd, it? 1975. Wish you were here to Hamilton, Ontario. I went down on the bus with my brother to collect bottles and cans. We were, um, you know, five cents for a can or whatever. So we thought there's gonna be loads of people there. We can make a fortune. So we went down on the bus. I've won stadium. They were expecting 20,000. There was 50,000 kids there. And you could actually see through into the stadium. And you could hear the music. I mean, you could hear the show. But you could just see part of the staging. So we managed to get an advantage point and actually watch, you know, a decent portion of the show. I remember the airplane crashing into the stage, shining on your crazy diamond. How much money did you make off the cans and bottles? Uh, we probably made twenty dollars each or something like that. Okay. You know, we had massive bags full of bottles and cans, and yeah, but that was a big thing. You know, you always looking for that in the street. If you saw a can, you keep it. <laughs> you know, you store it and then go to the local, I don't know, the grocery store and drop them off. It was a way of getting extra surplus income. Plus, it was paper. I delivered papers at the time as well. You know, get up at four or five in the morning, deliver the Globe and Mail, which is Canadian paper. Okay, so yeah, that's yeah. 13, so you're already living in Canada. Yeah, I was in Canada, and Canada was really important because musically, um, my God, you, you, everything was coming from New York State. Mm -hmm. It was Mecca. I mean, to me, New York was, New York City was Mecca. Manhattan was Mecca. It was just like this mythical place because all this cultural information was coming through radio, television, you know, bands that were coming through the area. And um, so that was huge. That was very, I mean, to see Pink Floyd at that time, I didn't think about it at the time, it was just like a big event. Right, it's kind of wow. This is incredible, but didn't really understand the impact of how important Pink Floyd were. So I got a bit older and and started really listening to their music and was like connected with it. Well, it's and interesting because it's funny as you talk about this. Then when you look at Canada, right, and yeah. it's not an area that you know, it's not a, when you think of the greatest Canadian musical artists. Yes. They don't necessarily translate when you're 12 or 13. No. But then you get older, yeah. and you think about Joni Mitchell and Neil Young mm -hmm. and Leonard Cohen. Yeah. And I mean, then as you get older, you're like, oh shit, that was like real, you know? Absolutely. So is it funny? Do you, do you develop an appreciation for Canadian music as you got older as well? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, definitely fell in love with Neil Young in my mid 20s because he was saying so much about the way I felt and in an incredibly articulate way. And he wrote those songs when he was about my age. So can I identify him with him? It was pre grunge as well. When I kind of really got into Neil Young, and uh, I went through a, a period where I was playing after the Gold Rush, and uh, you know, I mean, on the beach, just endlessly, endlessly, and everything else. We actually performed uh, Cortez the Killer at an International Indian Treaty Convention in San Francisco, and like, whatever it was in the nineties, and we played Cortez the Killer. So Neil Young's always been a very important artist. Cool. Sure. Dude, cool. thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Appreciate it. This is a nice interview. Oh, thank you. You're an intelligent man. Eh, depends on the day.
<laughs> hey, this is Steve Balton. You have been here on My Turning Point with Ian Asbury from The Cult. Dude, this was a really fun conversation. Hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Thanks so much. to run it. When you look out into the sea of CRMs, it can look extremely blue. But HubSpot is here to give your company a more human approach. We're a CRM that's easy to use, aligns all your teams seamlessly, and delivers a better experience for your customers. So your business feels like a helpful partner and not just some company trying to force a sale. There's a better way to help grow your business by connecting your people, your customers, and your business. HubSpot. Grow better. When it comes to LASIK, Dr. Boutros and the Eye Center have led the way for the past 25 years. Today, this tradition continues by being one of the few practices in the country to offer you iDesign 2.0, using the same technology as the NASA James Webb Telescope. And in the hands of an elite surgeon like Dr. Boutros, more patients are seeing 2020 or better after LASIK. Right now, enjoy 20% off iLASIK with iDesign. Go to theeyecenter.com or call 888-844-2020. Some restrictions apply. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.